you're taking your seats, would you turn with me uh, to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. Our reading this morning will come from verses 11 through 15. You can find that reading in the Pew Bibles there on page 835, page 835. Before we read, however, uh, I think it's important uh, that I give you a brief test, a, a, just a brief historical test if you'll oblige me for a moment. I wonder what happens if I say the words, He is risen. Some of you are are catching on, so we'll do that one more time for the others. I wonder what happens if I say, start the recording now, He is risen. He is risen indeed. Excellent. You've passed the test, but I will give you this fair warning. I'm going to say that again one more time in the sermon today, and I hope you're listening. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 11. Beloved friends, hear now the living and active Word of God. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Indeed, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray to him that he would nourish us today. Our Father in heaven, we pray that as we come and we read of an insidious lie, a lie that even to this day continues in the world, we pray that this, your holy word, would move in our hearts to tell us, indeed, Christ is alive, that he is at your right hand, and that he is coming again. Give us confidence in that truth today. We ask it in his name. Amen. Everybody's got a favorite word, I think. We've got this book at my house called Word Collector that I read uh, to my children. It's all about a young boy who writes down words that he finds interesting. And by the end of the book, he sort of scatters them to the wind so that other children would learn to love words. It's something that we want our children to love and enjoy. A few years ago, I heard a word, though, that uh, it will be difficult to top in my life. And that word is simply scuttlebutt. You ever heard this word? Scuttlebutt. I love this word. The reason I love this word is is, uh, because it's one of those words that just sounds horrible. Because it describes something horrible. It's one of those words that it sounds like how we're supposed to understand the thing it describes. That's why I love this word. This word comes to us from uh, the 19th century when uh, sailing ships would take months to cross oceans. They would need fresh water. And so what they would do is they would scuttle or break a barrel or a butt and put fresh water in it and a cork at the bottom so that you could uncork it and have drinking water. And so what would happen when you did put that on a ship? Well, men would go and gather around it. And what would they do? Gossip. They'd tell rumors They would tell each other stories. They'd talk behind each other's backs. It was that day's water cooler. 
where you would go and get your drinking water and take a break. And as you took a break, you shared the latest salacious news amongst the other 40 people on the ship. Scuttlebutt is something that sort of then morphs into just another word for gossip. Sort of a hideous word for gossip. Again, it reveals the hideous nature of gossip. This morning, you've read of scuttlebutt. You've read of a malicious lie and rumor spread by a group of people, the the Sanhedrin. You may remember from a few weeks ago, the Sanhedrin is just the collective of uh, 71 or so men in Israel who were sort of the supreme court at the time, who would handle all matters of Jewish law at the highest level. And they were comprised generally of Pharisees and Sadducees. And at the time of the writing of the gospel, the Sadducees were the priests. They were the ones who uh, had the, the council sort of under their control. The high priest would have been a Sadducee at the time. And so you see that in verse 11, where we begin is in the audience of the chief priests telling them, the guard telling them what has happened. And so the Sanhedrin, the leaders, those who are supposed to be above reproach, those who are supposed to handle the weighty matters of the law, we see them engage, sadly, in scuttlebutt. And the scuttlebutt they tell is simple, it's believable, it's compelling because of its simplicity and believability. It's that the disciples just came and stole the body and hid it somewhere else. And everything they're telling you is just made up. And yet, if we reflect a little longer on the details that Matthew gives us in the gospel, I think actually what we're going to see instead is that the scuttlebutt isn't simple. It's not believable. In fact, it's quite the opposite. And so I want you to know today that despite the scuttlebutt, the Sanhedrin spread, Christ the Lord is risen indeed, that he is alive, and that you can have confidence in that truth because this scuttlebutt has at least three glaring holes in its veracity. The first hole in the scuttlebutt is that it is incomprehensible. It doesn't make any sense. And there's, there's really three sort of sub-reasons why it doesn't make any sense. The first is that it, it deals with the Roman guard. And the Roman guard would never have admitted to falling asleep on duty. Now before we go into that, I, I know that there are differing views as to precisely who guarded the tomb. Who was outside? I just want to tell you, obviously, I've said it already, I take the view that it is the Roman guard. And I take it for a variety of reasons. If you want to hear more of those reasons, tune into Watering Seeds, our podcast on sermons later this week. I'll give more, I'm sure. But let me just give you two briefly why I take it that way. If you go back to chapter 27 in verse 65, we read that Pilate said to the Sanhedrin, who were requesting a guard, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. 
You see there in the footnote that it says, take a guard. The question really becomes, did Pilate give them one or is he dismissing them and saying, well, you have one, take care of it yourselves. And I take it to be that Pilate is giving them one because the word he uses for guard is not a Greek word at all. In fact, it's a Latin word. It's a, the Latin word uh, custodia, where we get our word custody. This is how a Roman governor would have referred to Roman troops. But the second reason is, if you look at our passage in verse 12, <clears throat> you see that the Sanhedrin gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And if you go back to Matthew 27, verse 27, you'll see that that word appears again as well. When the Roman soldiers were the ones mocking and beating Jesus before his death. And so for those two reasons, among many others, I take this to be the Roman guard, which I think highlights the incomprehensibility of this scuttlebutt. It really shows the ridiculousness of what the Sanhedrin are trying to pull off. Right? They're, they're giving a lie that Roman soldiers fell asleep while they were told to guard something. And the reason that's incomprehensible, it's truly unthinkable. Because for Roman soldiers, falling asleep on duty meant sure and certain death. And if they didn't die, it meant that they would never have been accepted back into society ever Again, one Roman historian uh, details out what happens when you fall asleep on duty as a Roman soldier. He says that the tribune on duty takes up a stick and he barely touches the condemned man with it. And then everyone in the camp beats him with sticks or hurls stones at him as he passes. And in most cases, the condemned man does not make it out of the camp alive. But even if he did, there would be no safety for him. How could there be when he is forbidden to return to his homeland? And no member of his family would dare give him shelter. To suffer this catastrophe once is to be utterly ruined. There is no possible way that the Roman guard, if they had truly fallen asleep, would ever, under any circumstances, admit that fact. They would have been kicked out of their legion. They would have essentially been assigned the death penalty. And even if survived, their life would be in tatters forever. It is incomprehensible to think that the Roman guard would go along with this plan. But it's not just that. It's also incomprehensible to think that the disciples could pull off such a heist. You know who we're dealing with. You've met these men through the gospel. You've met these men who, who can hardly do anything Jesus tells them to do. And the one thing they're good at, fishing, we actually find them failing at until Jesus works a miracle to give them fish. No disrespect to my brothers who are the disciples. But they simply don't have the tools, the expertise, or the ability to do this. But even if they somehow did, even if they had just simply 
pulled the wool over all of our eyes throughout the entire Gospel of Matthew, it is unthinkable that they would be free. These men would have been arrested and beaten until the information of where the body was came out. Think about it. They flipped Judas with 30 pieces of silver. How quickly do you think one of the other 11 is going to flip if they stole the body? It's unthinkable. Because if you go to Acts 5, in Acts 5 we see that the Sanhedrin actually have them arrested. They actually have them in custody. They have them. And they let them go. Rather than making them produce the body, just produce the body and this goes away. Just give us the body again and it's all over. And they have the disciples and they don't even tell them to give them that. But if you're not convinced yet, there's one more reason this is incomprehensible. And it's because the Sanhedrin could not possibly, possibly have promised protection from the governor. You see that when the soldiers come, the Sanhedrin bribes them, and they tell them the scuttlebutt, and then they say in verse 14, if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We'll ensure that that thing that we read from the Roman historian Polybius, that'll never happen. We'll handle it. Now, I'm not saying they don't believe that they can. I'm saying they actually can't. They're a bit too big for their britches. They think their power is far beyond what it actually is. And so they they think they can convince Pilate to drop it, but any Roman soldier would have known in this farce that there is no possible way out of this. And the Sanhedrin cannot protect them. But notice in these points of incomprehensibility, notice the truth between all of them. Notice what the Sanhedrin actually admit. Did you see it? In the scuttlebutt, they say, the disciples came and stole the body while you were sleeping. What does that mean, my friends? That even the Sanhedrin admit that the tomb is empty. That there is no body where Jesus' body once was. That the stone was rolled away and the seal was broken. And that Jesus Christ was not where they left him last. They give up the most crucial point in their scuttlebutt. That the tomb has nothing in it. Nothing at all. And so, I think we actually see the incomprehensibility of the scuttlebutt points to the comprehensibility of the resurrection. I think that far from being sort of this fantastic story that that dead people don't come back to life, that's ridiculous. We actually see the details of the story, even the details of their lie, point to the fact that the resurrection makes a whole lot of sense. Often, the resurrection even today, is laughed off for that reason, isn't it? 
Which one of us has ever seen a dead man come back to life? Which of us would ever say that that someone who is rotting in a tomb for three days could come out? Someone who is so dead, who's lost so much blood, could roll away a massive boulder and trick several Roman guards. But nothing else makes sense, does it? If you look at this story from every other angle, nothing else makes sense of the facts that the gospel gives you. That there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who walked on the earth for three years saying he would defeat death, that he would die, and that he would come back to life. And now, in our story, at the end of the gospel, suddenly no one can find his body. They know he was dead. They crucified him. He died faster than most people. They knew he was dead. They laid him in the tomb. They sealed the tomb. But even if he didn't die on the cross, he would have died from his wounds because he didn't have water. He didn't have food. He didn't have anything in there. But the most crucial thing is that nobody is trying to find him. Nobody is trying to find where Jesus is. And that's because, notice, that the Sanhedrin don't disbelieve the story the soldiers told them. They just don't want it to be true. That's crucial. Because that tells us that the resurrection is not a conspiracy theory. It's not a denial of reason. It's actually the opposite. It's the denial of the conspiracy theory of the Sanhedrin. And it's the affirmation that all of the facts simply point to one reality, that Jesus is not in the tomb after years of saying he wouldn't be. And so often, the most simple explanation is the correct one. Friends, we've been told the answer. He would rise again. And sure enough, he did. That tells you today that there is a God of life. A God who cannot be restrained by death. And his name is Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved than than Jesus Christ. And there is no better reason than the resurrection for that tomb to have been broken open and empty. There is no better reason than the miracle of the resurrection for nobody to be able in 2,000 plus years to produce a body and put this whole thing to bed. But it's not just that the scuttlebutt is incomprehensible. There's another glaring hole. Secondly, it's that the scuttlebutt is incompatible. Right? If you go back to Jesus' trial, the Sanhedrin tried to show that Christ was leading a rebellion against Rome. You remember this? Their chief complaint was that Jesus called himself the king of the Jews. We have no king, they say, but Caesar. We don't want this rebellion. This guy's a rebel. Take him. Get rid of him. They try to convince Rome that this man is a threat to them. And yet, notice in our passage this morning that in spreading this rumor and ensuring that Rome plays along, who's actually trying to exert control. 
Who's actually trying to stand over and above Roman authority? The Sanhedrin. You see, they're guilty rather than Jesus of what they claimed Jesus said. And nobody seems to notice. And what that tells us is that they actually do have some sort of sway. They do have some type of say in the matter, and they exercise it. They use that position, and they try to influence Rome. And so their rumor flies in the face of their previous position. It's incompatible with what they claim Jesus was trying to do. They're not submitting themselves to Rome. They're trying to pull the strings and have Pilate be their puppet. Friends, that shows you, I hope, the nonsense of the rumor they try to spread. It shows you the incompatibility of sin and victory. It tells us that they cannot be even internally consistent as they try and exercise power, not even just over Rome, but over God himself. And the resurrection tells you and me today, tomorrow, and every single day thereafter that sin will not have victory at all. But Jesus will. And Jesus has. And he has today. Power over sin and death by his victory. You see, the Sanhedrin, they lie, they bribe their way to Jesus' death, and yet... By God's providence, it only makes it worse for them. They never get what they want, do they? Even in Acts 5, where I told you that they arrested the disciples, they don't get what they want. They say, stop preaching Jesus. And what do the men do? Continue to preach Jesus. No one can stop it. Because only Jesus has victory. The resurrection is not just merely to intellectually prove that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, were wrong. It's to prove that sin and evil and wickedness can never have what it wants in the end. It can never have you. It can never have dominion and power and your ultimate destruction. Because Jesus Christ is alive. Lies will not win because sin and victory are incompatible. I think we're compelled by this reality, regardless of if we believe in Jesus or not. Maybe you're sitting here and you don't believe in Jesus. That's okay. We hope you stay. And maybe you're thinking to yourself all sorts of ways in which you might respond to how I'm describing the resurrection to you. And I'd love to talk to you about it. But there's something that I think you and I can agree on. And that is that you and I both want good to triumph over evil. You and I both want wickedness and what I would call, what the Bible would call sinfulness to go away. Let me give you an illustration of that. When my wife was in college studying reading education for children, she had a reading literature professor who made them read sort of the 
the, the great children's books and give presentations on them. And I forget exactly how it happened, but uh, uh, in God's providence, my wife ended up with the Chronicles of Narnia. And the professor tells this story. Uh, when Madeline gave her presentation, she tells this story that she initially read all of Narnia and loved it. She thought it was fantastic. She thought it was sort of the pinnacle of children's literature. And it might be. And then, as professors do, they go and they read about the thing they just read about, right? And suddenly, everything's bringing up this guy named Jesus. That Lewis wrote an allegory to the gospel. Would you believe me if I told you that now she hates Narnia? She dislikes it immensely. You see, friends, everybody wants the gospel to be true. Everybody loves the story of good triumphing over evil. Everybody loves Narnia. But very few of us want it to be Jesus. Very few on this earth are willing to submit themselves to Jesus, who promises exactly that who gives exactly that. And so if you're here today and you don't believe in the resurrection and instead buy into some type of scuttlebutt, let me tell you that what you desire, what you want to have, the triumph of good over evil has already taken place because even his enemies admit the tomb was empty. Even those who hate him and revile him can't show you his body. Friend, if that is you today, you can have the gospel simply by submitting yourself to Jesus. For his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Your life can know hope. Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the third glaring hole in the scuttlebutt. Ultimately, the scuttlebutt is inconsequential. This is the good news. That even the Sanhedrin who admit the tomb is empty, admit something more than just that they've lost the argument. They've admitted that they have no control, that they have no power. They admit that they have no explanation for how Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And so they send out this rumor. They don't admit that Jesus has risen from the dead. Instead, they ignore the facts while even believing what the guards tell them. And they go and they spread this rumor, but friends, while they do and say whatever they want, what's in the tomb? Nothing. While they try to get you and me to believe today that Jesus Christ never rose again from the dead, friends, what is in the tomb? Nothing. People can say or do whatever they want about Jesus. But it does not change the facts 
It does not change the truth that Jesus wasn't there. It does not change the truth that Jesus rose from the dead. And so the rumor proves, as we read the rest of Scripture, to not matter. To be totally and utterly inconsequential. We get to see the power of the Sanhedrin dissolve before our very eyes. All for the sake and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. The resurrection, on the other hand, is immensely consequential. The fact that Jesus rose again from the dead has so much meaning and so much power. And so even today, people can tell you whatever they want. They can tell you whatever they want you to believe. They can spread whatever rumor it is that they've heard from somebody else and somebody else. And they may not even be intentionally malicious about it. But it doesn't affect the simple fact that Jesus is alive. And the resurrection, the rising of Jesus, as he has said, the angel told us, the rising of Jesus has immense meaning because it changes everything. The rumor changes nothing, but the resurrection changes everything. It changes your past through the forgiveness of your sins. Through the ability for you to know that whatever hardship you have endured, even at the hands of wicked other people, God will have the final say in what has happened to you. Because Jesus has achieved the victory over sin and wickedness and death by rising again from the dead. Friends, it changes your, your future, doesn't it? By giving you hope. It changes where you're going. It changes what you think about what's going to happen. By giving you a delightful image of what God has in store for you. What Jesus himself is preparing for you in his Father's kingdom. But don't overlook the simple fact that it also changes your present. It changes who you are right now. That despite what the world has told you about not just Jesus, but about yourself, is not true. That the scuttlebutt you've heard, the hurtful words that have been, somehow gotten to your ear, the Lord God thinks nothing of the sort about you because Jesus Christ is alive. And in his life, he has brought you to his Father as acceptable and pleasing and delightful. Right now, in this very moment, you have reconciliation with God. That he loves you. And that he desires to make his dwelling place with you. So as Pastor Sean said, Last week from the Apostle Paul, yeah, if the resurrection's not true, we above all people are to be pitied. Above all people, we experience shame. We are fools. But I'm here to tell you today, it is true. 
The scuttlebutt is incomprehensible, it is incompatible, and friends, it is gloriously inconsequential to the truth of the fact of the matter. It's not just because of the history. It's not just because I think it's the Roman guard. It's not just because of Latin and verbs. It's not just because I can tear apart this intellectually and logically. And so can you. It's true because it happened. It's true because Jesus is alive. And it's true most of all because God in his word affirms it to you. God tells you in no uncertain terms that Jesus Christ is not dead. And so it is the height of my joy and privilege to stand here and to tell you all with the fullest confidence and certainty that he is risen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, nothing compares to this. Nothing compares to our Savior being vindicated. And those liars and enemies being completely and totally impotent to do anything. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant Matthew to record these words. Give us this great and glorious confidence in those words that we would know that the rumor makes no sense. The resurrection, it's true because you have said so. Lord, accept, therefore, all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table today, would you uh, join me in singing hymn number 450, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Let's stand together as we sing.